but no. Right, he climbed the ladder after that. Well, I climbed the ladder before that, actually, but um, we'll, that's next week's lesson, actually, so. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. For those of you who weren't here, uh, last week we began a, a, a New Year's series in which we're thinking about building and living a life that matters. Um, so last week we were talking about these two very basic needs that we all have. On the one hand, the need to be successful, uh, to feel like we've really left our mark on the world. Um, and on the other hand, this need to be a good person and to feel like we are acknowledged by other people as good. Um, and sometimes those needs uh, come in conflict with each other. And we're looking at all of this through the lens of this wonderful Old Testament figure named Jacob, who this morning we find by the river Jabbok. He was alone. Um, the night was totally dark, and he was afraid. He tried to calm his fears by repeating to himself that as long as he was alone, he had nothing to fear. When suddenly, someone seized him from behind and threw him to the ground. He tried to fight back. He'd spent all of his life doing physical labor, so he was strong. But his adversary was as strong as he was. They fought. They wrestled through the entire night, neither of them able to gain advantage over the other. Who is this person who is exactly as strong as I am? Where did he come from? And what does he want with me? Then, as the first rays of dawn began to appear, he felt this mysterious stranger twist his leg and escape from his grasp. The two of them now, sweating and exhausted, regarded each other as a grudging, with a grudging respect, the way worthy adversaries do when they know they cannot always win. Think Ali Frazier. Think Federer and Nadal. And he knew he would never again be the same person he was before. The story could be taken from a local police station, I suppose. But no, it comes from the Bible. Jacob, the trickster, whose name would be changed to Israel. He, she, who wrestles with God. For my money, Jacob is the most intriguing character in all of the Hebrew scriptures. There's more written about him than all of the other patriarchs put together. We meet him as a child. We meet him as a young man. We meet him as a mature father and um, husband. And we meet him as an old man contemplating his own death. If we read the biographies of good people, at least in part to um, make our own lives better, really you could do no better than listen to what Jacob has to teach us. So, it all began really with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, who you remember came to this startling conclusion that behind everything that is, 
there is really only one God, not many. And that this God demands righteous behavior from his people. And Abraham and his wife Sarah passed that belief on to their son, Isaac. Now, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, had twin boys, Jacob and Esau, born out of a difficult pregnancy where um, Rebekah felt those two babies wrestling inside of her. Just a foretaste of what was yet to come. Esau, the eldest, by only a few minutes, um, was a physical brute. He was a hunter by trade. Jacob was born holding on to his heel, hence the name Jacob, the tripper-upper, the trickster. As is often the case with twin brothers, uh, they were opposites in many ways, as if in the womb each of them had grabbed half of the traits that were available and left the other half for the other twin. Esau was his father's favorite, maybe because he was strong and physical in ways that his father had always wanted to be but never was. Think of the desktop, the desk-bound father who always lives vicariously through his athletic son. Jacob, on the other hand, was a mama's boy. He was always the apple of his mommy's eye. So, in this one encounter... Esau comes home from probably an unsuccessful hunting expedition. He is not in a good mood. And he finds Jacob cooking up a batch of lentil stew. Famished, he asks his brother to give him some, and Jacob trades the soup for Esau's birthright so that Jacob will now be considered the firstborn. He will now get a double portion of his father's estate when Isaac dies. So, in just six verses, we see Esau now defined as a man who lives by his appetites. Jacob, on the other hand, is a scheming young man who will always try to get by cleverness what he cannot get by strength. I heard a psychologist once who contrasted two styles of morality. He said, there is the morality of cleverness and wit, in which success always means getting the better of the other person, whether it is by means of a slick business deal or by a clever answer in academia. And the worst sin here is letting somebody take advantage of you. Think Woody Allen. In my family, the worst sin was paying retail. <laughs> On the other hand, there is the morality of righteousness, in which the highest good is thoughtfulness towards others, and the worst sin is hurting another person. And Jacob's story is the story of his evolution from one kind of morality to the other. And his invitation to you and to me is to recognize that same struggle and growth in our own lives. So, as the story continues, Isaac, the father, gets older and he is now blind. And 
believing that he doesn't have much longer to live, he prepares to bestow his patriarchal blessing on his oldest, his favorite son, Esau, designating him as the one who will now carry on the family traditions. And the implication here is that Isaac's blindness is as much spiritual as it is physical. He cannot see that Jacob, for all of his limitations, is really the most qualified. Rebecca, on the other hand, sees this all too clearly. And so she devises an elaborate scheme to make sure that the right son, her favorite, is the one who gets blessed. And so she dresses Jacob in Esau's clothing. She covers his hairless arms with goat skin so that he will smell and feel like Esau. And she sends him into his blind father to be blessed before Esau gets home that evening. Though Jacob is uncomfortable with the ruse, um, perhaps out of fear of getting caught more than um, out of any sense that this is wrong, he, of course, does his mother's bidding. He is his mama's boy. So we begin to see the split in Jacob's soul. There is this inner conflict between his desire to get what he desperately wants and, on other hand, the sense that he can get it only by being deceitful and disliking himself for that. And, of course, Jacob's behavior makes us uncomfortable as well, right? Because we know he is the hero of the story. Rebecca is right. He is the most qualified. But we would like our heroes to be a little more heroic. Anyway, the ruse works, at least for a short period. Esau eventually arrives home, and he exposes his brother's plot. But it's too late. Once the promise is given, it cannot be withdrawn. Furious, Esau threatens to kill his brother Jacob. And Jacob very prudently once again follows his mother's advice and hightails it off to his maternal uncle Laban's estate. On his first night away from home, Jacob, this frightened adolescent who is now ashamed of what he has done, he goes to sleep in the desert. And he has a dream that we have already sung about. There is a ladder that is reaching up to heaven. At the top of the ladder, he senses, he doesn't see, he senses God. And this ladder will now become an important theme in Jacob's life. So when we first meet him, there are a lot of things about him that are not very likable. But what fascinates us about him what makes this story one that teaches us something is that he grows in it. If the ladder that bridges earth and heaven represents the distance between Jacob as he is and Jacob as he has it in him to become, then his whole story is about this struggle to climb that ladder from a lower to a higher level to become a more complete person. Not through manipulation and cleverness, the trickster, 
but rather through sacrifice and through growth. And so Jacob awakens from this dream, and he prays to God, saying to God that if God will watch over him, if God will bring him home safely, then he will offer a tithe. He will offer a tenth of everything that he has. I want you to keep that prayer in your mind for a few minutes. Not for that, but yes, also for that. So, over the river and through the woods, Jacob makes his way to the land of Aram, today's Syria, where for the next 15 or 20 years, he will work for his equally deceivious uncle, Laban, managing to marry not one, but both of his daughters. Parenthetically, don't you just love it when people today, for their own political gain, um, insist that marriage has always been the same since the beginning of time. One man and one woman. Don't you just love it? Anyway, at the end of his time there, uh, Jacob is ready to return to his homeland, this time with his family and all of his new possessions. He is preparing to cross the river into Canaan. He is going to see his brother again face to face. He sends the women and the children and the animals across. As night falls, he is left alone on the other side of the river. And it is then that this mysterious stranger attacks him. So who is this mystery man? Why does he attack Jacob? And why do they fight to a standoff? There are many commentators who see him as just a dangerous enemy who is seeking to harm Jacob. There are others who see him as sort of the personification of everything that, that lurks in the darkness. Think every horror film that you have ever seen. But what if? What if this mysterious attacker is actually a part of Jacob himself? That's why he only appears when the story emphasizes that Jacob was alone. That's why he is exactly as strong as Jacob. No stronger, no weaker. The attacker, this angel, is Jacob's conscience. The part of him that summons him to rise up higher. The struggle is between that part of him that always wins by cleverness and manipulation, and on the other hand, that part that feels summoned by God to climb higher, to become a better person. Jacob is at war with himself. You remember the situation. Tomorrow, he is to see his brother face to face, the brother whose parting words to him were, the next time I see you, I'll kill you for what you have done. Now, you can imagine, can't you, that Jacob the trickster could have come up with some clever scheme, just the right words to say to Esau that would circumvent all of that anger and awkwardness. He knows how to do this. He's done it his whole life. But then saying to himself, no. All my life, whenever I have been in difficulty, I have responded by lying and running away. 
I wish I was just brave enough to face up to the consequences of my behavior. I'm afraid to meet Esau tomorrow. But I am equally afraid of continuing this pattern of trying to solve my problems that way. And I wonder if at that point there's not a part of us that can identify with Jacob. His wrestling with this angel, this split within ourselves. Part of us wanting to take the easy way out and part of us wanting to take the high road. Part of us wanting to write that check for charity while another part gives us every reason to keep it to ourselves. Part of it wanting to play the part of the Good Samaritan and helping somebody in need. Another part of us cautious, keep the boundaries up and pass by on the other side. Sometimes we scold ourselves because we know how easy it is with practice to ignore that voice of conscience. The Jewish Talmud says that at first, a bad habit enters our lives as an, in, as an invited guest. But before long, it becomes a member of the family and ultimately takes over the whole house until finally we come to feel like we have lost a precious part of ourselves and who we want to be. So, who wins in this epic match? Since the two antagonists are really part of the same person, you can understand that Jacob wins and also loses. At the end, he is injured. He is limping. Time for another hip surgery. And yet the Bible describes him as a shalem, which in Hebrew is the word for wholeness and integrity. It's very close to the word that we already know, shalom, which of course means peace. Jacob is at peace with himself. In a sense, Jacob wins by losing. You see, until now, um, whenever he has had these pangs of consciousness, of conscience, when he trades a bowl of stew for his brother's birthright instead of just sharing his bowl with his hungry brother, or when he misrepresents himself to his blind father, every time he has been able to defeat his conscience and rationalize his behavior. Only when he has climbed a part of the way up that ladder, only in this case, when he has been married and had um, children of his own, and maybe when he's gotten a little sense of his own medicine from his uncle Laban, is he strong enough to let his conscience hold its own against him. So he is no longer Jacob. He is Israel, he, she, who always wrestles with God. So, you remember Jacob's prayer? Remember his prayer that first night when he ran away? He asked God to protect him, to bring him home safely, and if God was willing to do what he wanted, he would give something back. 
such a deal I have for you, God, ready to strike a bargain with you. However, on this night when he prays, you will notice there is no longer bargaining with God. Jacob says to God, you have already done for me more than I had a right to expect. I have nothing to offer you in return. All I can say is, I am turning to you because I need you. I have to do something tomorrow, and I am not sure I am up to it myself. But if you will be with me, maybe I can manage it. Notice he doesn't ask God to solve his problem for him. He doesn't ask that God would strike Esau with amnesia so that he will no longer be angry with him. He doesn't pray for another clever scheme that will trick his brother. He prays for the strength to do the right thing. And in that struggle, he is wounded. In fact, maybe the most important thing Jacob learns that night is that he can be hurt, but he can survive the hurt. He can pay the price of honesty and generosity. And yes, it will hurt, but he will get over it. Dr. Rachel Remen, speaking of physical work, um, wounds, asks this question. She says, what, what would you do uh, if you didn't know that your body could heal? Would you ever ride a bicycle? Would you ever use a knife to cut up vegetables? Would you ever get off the couch? Now, of course, Jacob's wounds here are not just physical. They are emotional and spiritual. For the first time in his life, he will let himself be forced to do the right thing. He knows it will hurt, but he has also learned that his soul can recover from the pain even as his body can. Doing the right thing can be incredible medicine for the soul. When we defeat that still small voice, that angel of God inside of us, we lose. But that little voice inside of us will not be stilled forever. It will find a time, often when we are alone, alone and feeling vulnerable, and it will attack at that weak moment. When the struggle is over, like Jacob, we may well be bruised, and we will limp away. However, like Israel, we will be whole. We will be at peace with ourselves in a way that we have never been before. <laughs>